Well, good morning again to you. Welcome. Glad y'all are here. My name is Clay Holland. I am senior pastor here at Christ the King. If we have not met, I do want to let you know that we are uh, always trying to keep everybody on their toes. We added back the reprise to the end of the service, meaning after the benediction, there's going to be another verse of Amazing Grace, which gives me the opportunity to like go that way because I have been getting uh, myself trapped in the front uh, the, for the last... How many months is like uh, for a while um, at least? So anyway, I'm going back out there. Be happy to talk to you. Love to meet you and uh, and get to know you. And I would also invite you if you have a Bible or a phone or an iPad or you know whatever else you've got to turn to Mark chapter 13. Uh, it will also be up here on the on the screen. I'm going to read the entire chapter. I'll try to read it fast. Uh, there's not a good stopping place, um, and I'm reminded as I read this chapter that C.S. Lewis once wrote the um, introductory chapter to a really old book by uh, Athanasius called On the Incarnation of the Son of God. And C.S. Lewis wrote in that that some people, he said, feel really close to God when they read a devotional book. And he said, I feel really connected to God when I'm sitting at my desk with my pipe clenched between my teeth, a pencil in my hand, working through a tough bit of theology. So we have a tough bit of theology. So if you brought your pipe, go ahead and bring it out. We don't, we don't do this every week at Christ the King. You know, so go ahead and break it out, get your pencil out, uh, and I will read from Mark chapter 13 otherwise known as, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. So here we go. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what beautiful stones and what beautiful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved." But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we do pray that in this difficult and meaty passage of your word, you would teach us now. We ask it in your name. Amen. Well, it's October the 18th. We're... uh, you know, just shortly into the fourth quarter of 2020, and I guess my question for you is, uh, have you had enough yet? Are you about good with 2020 in your life? Because by my count, and this is just my count, my cursory count of things that have happened in 2020, here's what I came up with. 2020 started with collapsing oil prices, moved from there to the coronavirus quarantine, moved on in the spring to two shocking deaths of black men, one involving armed citizens and one involving police officers. Then my dog died. Moved on to protests, some of which turned to riots, some of which resulted in destruction of property and in violence, some of which are still going to this day since the end of May. 
move on to a spike in COVID-19 hospitalizations that led to a second round of shutdowns in July, moved on to an election season that has been the most overtly rancorous of any that I can remember in my lifetime, moved on to raging fires in the West and uncountable uh, hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico, moved on to a really, really interesting presidential debate, and the president and first lady testing positive for COVID-19. And then it moved on to the truly weird, which was Jose Altuve getting the yips at second base and not being able to throw. And then it moved to a Game 7 heartbreak. And here we are one day later, a couple of weeks into the fourth quarter of the year with several weeks yet to go before the election and many more after that to go before the end of the year. Now, if one were inclined to look for signs of the apocalypse, they could perhaps be forgiven to assume that 2020 is it, that it indeed marks the end of the world as we know it. But the question is, does it? And are we supposed to be fixating our attention on trying to parse out signs of the second coming of Jesus anyway? Is that possibly a distraction that would actually keep us from doing what Jesus has told us to do, which is to live faithfully and to be on our guard, to love God and to love our neighbors? Mark 13 is a tough and it's a controversial chapter. There's no way to answer all of the questions that it poses. But it does make one central and overarching point, and it is this. Jesus will return in glory someday. That will happen. So, be on your guard and live your life ready for his return. That's the simple point. Now, the big question surrounding the interpretation of Mark 13, and one of the reasons why it's so confusing, is this. What's the time stamp here? What's the time referent of this passage? What's he talking about? You see, the disciples come to Jesus, or four of his disciples come to him in verse 4, and they ask him what they believe to be one question. When will these things occur? And when they say that, they mean with respect to the temple in Jerusalem being torn down. So they ask one question, when will these things occur, and what is the sign that all of these things will be fulfilled? That's one question. Jesus, as he is wont to do, when he gets a question that is the wrong question, doesn't answer one question, he answers two questions. He says, first, the question that Jesus answers is this, when will the temple be destroyed? That's the first question that he answers. The second question that he answers is, what will the signs be of the end of the age? So Jesus is making reference both to an historical event in the first century, which is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and an event in the future, which is his second coming. And the problem is, is that he keeps mixing it all up as you go through Mark 13, and sometimes it's hard to tell when he's talking about what. And so we have to kind of look at this chapter with an eye toward both of those things. So the question becomes for us, what are we supposed to do then after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which has already happened in the first century, and now while we're waiting for him to return. And he says we're called to wait by being ready, by keeping watch for Christ's return. How do we do that? Well, first, Jesus says that keeping watch for his return means that we are called to be on our guard. We must be on our guard. 
The first instruction that Jesus gives to his disciples in verse 5 is to watch out that no one deceives you. Watch out that no one deceives you. Jesus predicts that in the first century especially, but even after that, there are going to be a lot of people who come and claim to be the Messiah. False Christs will come. They will try to lead you astray. And he tells us to be on our guard. The first way that we can be on our guard against false Christ and false systems of salvation is to simply devote ourselves to the true Christ. All of Mark 13 is wrapped up in Jesus' self-understanding of being the true and only Messiah. He's overlooking the city of Jerusalem. He knows that just in a, in a couple of short days, he's going to go back into that city. He's going to be arrested and tried and put to death. He is saying, I am the only Savior. My death on the cross is the only means of salvation. Focus on me. Focus on that. And you will not be led astray by others. So we um, are on our guard by focusing on the true Christ. And second, that we are called to be on our guard by vigorously rejecting false saviors and false systems of salvation. Jesus warns in verse 6 and in verse 22 that over the course of history, many will come in his name claiming to be the true Savior. Or that others will deceive you by trying to point you away from Christ alone to something else that will offer you hope or salvation in this life. The first century uh, was rife with people claiming to be the Messiah. And as you've known throughout history, other human beings have come along and they have claimed to be the Messiah. Cult leaders, you know. Uh, David Koresh, Jim Jones, it's not, in our own lifetime there have been people like this. The difference between all of those people and Jesus from the first century to the 21st is that when they die, they remain dead. And when Jesus died, he rose again from the dead on the third day, proving that only he is the true Savior. Now, there's something even a little bit more sinister at work here, and it's at this point that we have to examine our own hearts. You may not be susceptible by falling prey to a cult leader, but being on guard against false Christs, if it means setting our affections on Christ alone, it also means steadfastly refusing to believe that we can be saved by anyone or anything other than Christ alone. This is an interesting season actually to be a pastor because I've heard a lot more talk in this election season, not necessarily from people at Christ the King, but just around in my neighborhood and, you know, just watching TV, watching the news or, you know, social media, anything like that. I've heard a lot more talk in this election season that is using the language of ultimacy. Maybe you have heard it too. Like some people saying, this is the most important election in American history. Or the survival of our nation is at stake in this election. I don't actually know about that. But I do know that elections are important. And as a citizen, I believe that this particular election is important. 
I'd encourage anyone who is uh, eligible to do so prayerfully to participate in the process that by God's goodness and grace, we have the ability to participate in by living in this country as Americans. It's a wonderful blessing from the Lord that we have. It is, to be sure, important. But I'm also a pastor. I'm your pastor. And as your pastor, I have actually taken a vow. I took a vow to remind you of this. That no matter what happens on November the 3rd, when you wake up on November the 4th or whenever it is that this whole thing gets straightened out, that the one and only Savior will still be sitting on his throne. He will not be moved. If you end up troubled and saddened by the results of the elections, it is important for you to remember that Jesus has not abandoned his throne, that he is still there. He's still ruling over the universe. He still works all things to your good, to those who are called according to his purposes, to those whom he loves. We do not get a vote on the kingship of Jesus. He's on his throne and that is where he will stay. But the other side of the coin is true as well. If you end up energized and elated by the election results, don't make the tragic mistake of believing that in any way, shape, or form, a Savior has just been elected. What we will have done as a nation, no matter who is elected President of the United States, what we will have done is we will have elected a flawed human being that we as followers of Jesus are called to fervently pray for as that person undertakes an extremely difficult job. The Messiah is not on the ballot. The Messiah is not on the ballot. We don't get to elect the Messiah. Whoever wins and whoever loses, Jesus sits on his throne. Be on guard, Jesus says here. Be on guard. Don't be deceived. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus because only Jesus will rule into eternity. So he says, be on guard. And he also tells us uh, that we are called to recognize the reality of judgment. Verses 14 through 23 are most clearly understood in their reference to the destruction of the temple that Jesus prophesied in verse 2. Now, this actually did take place, historically speaking, um, in the first century. In the year A.D. 70, Roman forces went into Jerusalem. They quashed a Jewish rebellion. They laid siege to the city. They killed or forced into exile most of the citizens of Jerusalem. And most importantly for the context here, they totally destroyed the temple. They tore it down. And it has not been rebuilt since that time. This is why Jesus makes reference in verse 14 to the abomination that causes desolation. This phrase comes, Jesus didn't make this up. This phrase comes from the Old Testament prophecy of Daniel. Specifically in chapters 9 and 11 and 12. And Jesus is saying here that the destruction of the temple in the first century AD is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel. That's Daniel's prophecy fulfilled. 
And what this prophecy refers to is something that took place in the temple in Jerusalem that defiled it. It is likely that this very thing occurred in A.D. chapter 70 when Roman troops marched into the temple in Jerusalem carrying flags that were emblazoned with the image of the Roman emperor and they went into the holiest of holy places and they offered sacrifices to the Roman Empire and to the Roman emperor. It was the abomination that caused desolation. It was an abomination to the Lord and his prescribed worship. It was the desolation and desecration of the temple and the entire city. That's the history. But why is that important? Well, first, the destruction, the temporal destruction of the, tem- uh, 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 of the temple in Jerusalem is important because it signifies Temporal judgment on all who denied the lordship of Christ. When Jesus spoke these words, it was somewhere in the realm of A.D. 30 to 35. When the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the the Roman troops, it was in A.D. 70. There was a 40-year period, roughly, 35 to 40-year period, after Jesus rose again from the dead, where the majority of the citizens of Jerusalem and the majority of Israel did not receive him as the Messiah. They did not receive Christ alone. When, when, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that the worship of the temple was no longer necessary, that, the, that, that what had restrained people from access to God was torn apart by the death of Jesus, and you could have direct access to the God of heaven and earth simply by embracing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And most did not do it. Most clung tenaciously to a system of sacrifice in a temple that was doing them no good whatsoever until that temple was destroyed and that sacrificial system with it. So that temple, that destruction is significant because it's an historical event that showed forth judgment at that time, but also foreshadows God's final judgment on any who deny Christ. That's the point for us. The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70 is like focusing our attention on one single solitary peak in the Rocky Mountains, knowing that there's an entire mountain range lying on the other side of it. That judgment of the temple is what's in focus, but it points to a larger scale and a larger potential judgment of any and all who ultimately deny Christ as Savior and Lord. So the question, of course, is where will you stand in that day of judgment? The judgment on Jerusalem instructs us that God takes sin seriously. That God takes the exclusivity of Jesus seriously. That faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is not one way of salvation. It is the way of salvation. That it is not optional, but that it is mandatory but that it is beautiful and that it is gracious and that it is wonderful and that the benefits of it lead to eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. But as much as people hate to talk about it, 
or don't believe it, the Bible is clear that final judgment is real. That there will come a day when Jesus returns, when he separates those, all those, historically speaking, from all ages and all times who embraced faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, from those who did not, and those who did enter into the glories of eternal life with him, and those who did not enter into eternal punishment apart from him. Where will you be on that day of judgment that Jesus says in this passage is coming? Finally, one final instruction for us. In light of the fact of Christ's return, we're called to live expectantly. The questions about this passage that throw people into the most confusions are the questions that Jesus actually tells us in this passage not to focus our attention on. Did you get that? We get all wrapped up in the stuff that Jesus says explicitly here. Don't worry about that. But that's what we really want to pay the most attention to. And those questions are, when will Jesus come back and what will the signs of Jesus' return be? As for the signs of his final return, uh, these things are characteristic of every age between Christ's first coming at that first Christmas and his second coming. Earthquakes, wars, and rumors of wars, famines, all of those things have taken place historically. They're not signs of the end of the age. They're signs of living in a fallen world that point us forward to the time when Christ will come back, but that we don't know. Jesus says these things that we take as signs are actually non-signs. With respect to the when question, Jesus is quite clear in verse 32 that no one knows about that day. That's a technical term in the Old New Testament uh, for his return. No one knows about that day or hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. A couple of things that we can learn from this. First, Jesus tells us what not to be concerned with. He tells us what not to concern ourselves with, the timing of his return. The obsession with signs and dates and times is a distraction from us. It's actually forbidden by Jesus. There's a beautiful thing in this passage. Jesus says, look, I don't even know. And I'm not worried about it. I'm not focused on it. Why are you focused on it, you know? That's not your calling in this time. Don't be obsessed with something that I'm not obsessed with. So what should we be focused on? Well, we should be focusing on being ready, being consumed with living faithfully while Jesus delays. In verses 34 through 37, Jesus uses a word picture, and he says, it's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch, to keep watch for the return of the master. We keep watch for the return of Jesus by not being focused on the things he tells us not to be focused on, but to be focused on the things he tells us to be focused on. Spreading the gospel to the nations. Spreading the gospel to the nations. The gospel will be proclaimed to all nations, Jesus says, and he uses flawed people like us even to do that. And second, it means to live in the knowledge of his return. You know, this is really hard. It is really, really, really hard to live our lives in the present in light of the sure and certain return of Jesus in the future. The reason why is because we can't see that. 
We only experience it as a hope. We don't see it. What we do see and feel and experience are the times that our hearts are broken, the times that we lose our, our, our jobs and the times that we lose our, our temporal, um, you know, even necessities in this life, the time when our relationships get severed and broken and destroyed. Uh, we see and feel and experience those things truly and really. But we are called as followers of Jesus to see even through those opaquely, you know, in, in a glass dimly, at the fact that one day when Jesus returns, he will wipe the reality of all of that away. And he will wipe every tear away from our eyes. And death will be no more. And all that has been lost will be turned to gain. And we're called to live our lives in the presence and light of that certain future. So if you are suffering physical or emotional anguish, I want to comfort you with the fact that Jesus will return. He will return. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. If you're struggling with the loss of those that you love, Christ is coming again and he will defeat that pain. If you are struggling meeting physical needs at this time, Christ will come again to fully defeat any lingering effects of the fall. If you are struggling feeling unworthy in this world, you are a beloved son or daughter of the king through faith in Jesus Christ, the lover of our souls. So keep watch. Be comforted. Be expectant. Be diligent in, in our activities in the kingdom. Not out of slavish fear of punishment or out of self-righteousness, but out of the joyful expectation of the return of the master who will bring unspeakable joy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to live our lives in the presence in light, in, in the present in light of the certainty of your future coming again. It's hard to do. It really is. Please, Holy Spirit, be with us and help us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.